rather more than a hundred and fifty years ago, but less than two hundred, say between 1760 and 1770, it should have been clear to any close observer of our civilization that we were entering a period in which the anti-Catholic side of the two halves into which Christendom had split was about to become the chief party. The Protestant culture was about to get the upper hand and would perhaps keep it for a long time. It did, as a fact, not only keep it, but increased its hold for more than a full lifetime, for something like a hundred years. Then, but not now till our own times, it declined. The outward or political signs of this Protestant growth were continued increase of financial, military, and naval power on that side of Europe. English commerce rapidly expanded. The Dutch continued to increase their banking, and, most important of all, England began to get hold of India. On the military side, the Protestant Germans produced a new and formidable army, that of Prussia, with a strong discipline crowned by victory. Something that was to have a great effect the British fleet became far more powerful than any other, and under its protection English trade and control over the East continually grew. By land, Prussia began to win battles and campaigns. These successes of Prussia were not continuous, but they founded a continuous tradition, and her soldier king, Frederick II, was certainly one of the great captains of history. Meanwhile, the Catholic culture declined in the same political field. Austria, that is, the power of the Catholic emperor among Germans, diminished in strength. So did the vast Spanish Empire, which included at that time much the greater part of populated America. These material outward signs of increasing Protestant power and the declining power of the Catholic culture were but the effects of a spiritual thing which was going on within faith was breaking down. The Protestant culture was untroubled by this growth of skepticism. The decline of men's adherence to the old doctrines of Christendom did not weaken Protestant society. The whole tone of mind in that society called every man free to judge for himself, and the one thing it repudiated and would not have was the authority of a common religion. A common religion is of the nature of the Catholic culture, and so the growing decline of belief worked havoc there. It destroyed the moral authority of the Catholic governments, which were closely associated with religion, and it either cast a sort of paralysis over thought and action, as happened in Spain, or, as happened in France, violently divided men into two camps, clerical and anti-clerical. Still, though we can see what was at work in the 18th century, the men of the time did not. England, through her sea power, had got a stranglehold on India. Prussia had established herself as a strong power, but no one foresaw that England and Prussia would overshadow Christendom. India was going to produce wealth and power for those who should exploit her and, with her as a base, establish their banking power and commerce throughout the East. Prussia was going to absorb the Germans and overthrow Europe. England also through her naval power, had got hold of the French colony of Canada. But no one in those days thought colonies of much importance save as sources of wealth for the mother country, and Canada had never been that for France. Later, when England lost her own colonies in North America and they became independent, 
it was wrongly regarded as a mortal blow to the English power throughout the world. Very few foresaw what the new republic in North America was going to mean for the future. Its vast and rapid expansion in numbers and wealth immensely strengthened the position of the Protestant culture in the world. It was much later that a certain proportion of Catholic immigrants somewhat modified this position. But even so, the United States remained during their astonishing increase an essentially Protestant society. At the end of the 18th century, and into the beginning of the 19th, came the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. These also increased the general strength of Protestantism and still further weakened the Catholic culture. They did so indirectly, and the immediate issues were so much more exciting and so much more directly concerned men's lives than this ultimate and profound effect was little appreciated. To this day, there are very few historians who appreciate the defeat of Napoleon in terms of contrasting cultures in Europe. The French Revolution was an anti-clerical movement, and Napoleon, who was its heir, was not himself a believing and practicing Catholic, and cannot be said to have returned to the faith until his deathbed. Nor, for all his genius, did he clearly perceive that difference of religion is at the root of differences in culture, for the generation to which he belonged had no conception of that profound and universal judgment. Nevertheless, the truth remains that had Napoleon succeeded, the preponderating culture of Europe would have been Catholic. His empire, intermarried with and allied to the ancient Catholic tradition of Austria, giving the church peace and ending the revolutionary dangers, would have given us a united and settled Europe, where, in spite of the very widespread of rationalism in the wealthier classes, Europe as a whole would have returned to the Catholic tradition. Napoleon, however, just failed, and he failed through miscalculating his chances in the campaign in Russia. After his failure, the process of decline, so long at work in the Catholic culture, continued throughout all the 19th century. England, as the result of the defeat of Napoleon, was able to expand uninterruptedly through her now not only unquestioned, but invincible sea power. There was no rival against her anywhere outside Europe. The Spanish Empire, already fallen very low, was broken up, largely through the efforts of England, which desired unimpeded trade with South and Central America. England seized points of vantage all over the globe, some of which became considerable local societies, at first called colonies, but now dominions. Prussia, through the defeat of Napoleon, became the leading power among the Germans. She annexed the Catholic population of the Rhine and became the triumphant rival of the Habsburg-Laurent House, the Emperor at Vienna. France fell into unceasing political experiment and breakdown, at the root of which was the profound religious division between Frenchmen. There was no united Italy, and such effort as was being made to create one was being made by anti-Catholics. Indeed, it is one of the most amusing ironies of history that the great power which Italy has now become was largely called into being by the sympathy Protestant Europe felt for the original Italian rebellions against the Catholic King of Naples and the authority of the Papal States. One working lifetime after the defeat of Napoleon, another weighty group of events was thrown into the scale against the Catholic culture. This was the series of crushing victories won by Prussia in the field, 
between 1866 and 1871. In those five years, Prussia destroyed the military power of Catholic Austria and created a new German empire in which the Catholics were carefully cut off from Austria and formed into a minority with Protestant Berlin as their center of gravity. Prussia also suddenly and completely defeated the French army, took Paris and annexed what suited her of French territory. This last business, the Franco-Prussian War, was far the most important of all, and might well have proved the end of the Catholic culture in Europe. Through the establishment of the Parliamentary French Republic, which went from bad to worse in laws and morals, and from the undermining of the confidence the French had in themselves, the new regime in France began to ruin French civilization and increased indefinitely the anti-Catholic faction, which obtained and kept external power over the French people. Moreover, as a result of that war, England became stronger still in the East, and she took the place of France as the master in Egypt, taking over the custody of the Suez Canal, which the French had made just before their final defeat, and acquiring Cyprus. Italy was now united, but weak and despised. Spain and Portugal had declined, it seemed to be on all hope of recovery. And with France torn by her religious quarrel and having the worst kind of professional politicians in power, with the son of Austria setting, with Prussia in full career, with the United States now recovering from its civil war, and more powerful and coherent than ever, rapidly becoming the richest country in the world, and with the population as rapidly expanding, it seemed a matter of course that the Catholic culture would be beaten right out of the field. The Protestant culture had become the manifest leader of white civilization. The thing was apparent not only politically, but in the economic field as well. The new machinery which transformed life everywhere, the new rapid communications of thought and goods and men, were mainly the product of the Protestant culture. The nations of Catholic culture did but copy the Protestant nations in these matters. So it was also with institutions. The English institution of Parliament, which had arisen and was maintained under aristocratic conditions by a governing class, was imitated everywhere. It was utterly unsuited to societies with a strong sense of human equality, but such was the prestige of England that men copied English institutions upon every side. Meanwhile, what may properly be called the test of the fortunes of the Catholic culture, Ireland, seemed to give the signal of that culture's final ruin. The Irish population, long dispossessed of its land, was halved by famine. The wealth of Catholic Ireland fell as rapidly as that of England rose, and no one of consequence thought it possible that Ireland, after her awful experiences in the 19th century, could rise again from the dead. The Pope had been despoiled of his income through the seizure of his states, and was now a prisoner in the Vatican, with all the spirit of the new Italian government, his apparent master, more and more opposed to religion. The educational system of Europe grew more and more divorced from religion, and in the large Catholic countries either broke up or fell wholly into anti-Catholic hands. It is very difficult to say when the tide turns in the great processes of history, but one rule may be wisely applied. The turn of the tide comes earlier than men judging by surface phenomena conceive, 
any great system, the actively centralized Western Roman Empire, the Spanish Empire, the period of Turkish rule in the East, the period of the absolute monarchies of Western Europe, has really begun to break down long before the outside observer can note any change. For instance, as late as 1630, men were still talking and thinking of the Spanish power as much the greatest thing in the world, yet it had received its death blow in Holland a lifetime before and was after Roquois, 1643, slowly bleeding to death. It was and is so with the Protestant hegemony over our culture, with the Protestant and anti-Catholic leadership of white civilization. The tide has turned. But what was the moment of change? When was slack water? It is difficult to fix a date for these things, but a universal rule is that, in doubt between two dates, the earlier date is to be preferred to the later. Many would put the years 1899 to 1901, the ominous Boer War, as the turning point. Some would put it later. For my part, I should fix it round about the years 1885 to 1887. It seems to me that a universal observer, unbiased by patriotic feeling, would fix that moment, or 1890 at the latest, as the point of flexion in the curve. The Protestant powers were apparently greater than ever, but a reaction was stirring, and in the next generation it was bound to become apparent. Whatever the causes, and whatever the precise date to be fixed, certainly somewhere between 1885 and 1904, the tide was turning. It was not turning toward the reestablishment of the Catholic culture as the leader of Europe, let alone to the reestablishment of the Catholic Church as the universal spirit of that culture. But the ideas and the things which had made the opposite culture all-powerful were breaking down. This modern decline of the Protestant hegemony and its succession by an altogether new menace, and a new Catholic reaction against that menace, I shall now describe. Whatever date we assign to the summit of power in the Protestant culture, whether we say that its decay was beginning as early as 1890, or that it cannot be put earlier than even 1904, Note, 1904 was the year of the diplomatic change by which England gave up her age-long alliance with Protestant Prussia and began, with much misgiving and against the grain, to support France. There is no doubt that after this date, in other words, with the very first years of the 20th century, the supremacy of the Protestant culture was undermined. The various Protestant heresies upon which it had been based and the general spirit of all those heresies combined, were declining. Therefore their fruit, the Protestant hegemony over Europe and the white world, was declining also. Protestantism was being strangled at its root, at its spiritual root. Therefore the material fruits of that tree were beginning to wither. When we study in detail the process of this veiled decay and the supremacy of the Protestant culture, we find two sets of causes. The first, and apparently the least important, though posterity may discover it to be of great importance, was a certain recovery of confidence in a portion, but only a portion, of the nations deriving from the Catholic culture, and at the same time a revival of vitality in Catholic teaching. Politically, there was no reaction towards the old strength of the Catholic culture. It was rather the other way. Ireland continued to decline in population and wealth, and was now more subject to a Protestant power than ever before. Poland could apparently no longer hope for resurrection. 
the divisions within the Catholic culture itself grew worse than ever. In France, which was the keystone of the whole, the quarrel between the church and her enemies became taken for granted, and the victory of those enemies taken for granted as well. Religion was dying out in the elementary schools. Great tracts of the peasantry were losing their ancestral faith, and with the decline of religion went a decline of taste in architecture and all the arts, and worst of all in letters. The old French lucidity of thought began to grow confused. There was no revival in Spain, and in Italy, what with the anti-clerical and Masonic parliamentary power and the difference between the various districts, yet another province of Catholic culture grew weaker. But there was already apparent some revival of religion in the wealthier classes among all the nations of Catholic culture. This might not seem to mean much, for the wealthier classes are a small minority, but they influence the universities, and therefore the literature and philosophy of their generation. Where, half a lifetime before, anyone would have told you that Catholicism could never again appear in the University of Paris, there were evident signs that it was again being taken very seriously. In all this, the great Pope, Leo XIII, played a chief part, seconded by him who was later to become Cardinal Mercier. St. Thomas Aquinas was rehabilitated, and the University of Louvain became a focus of intellectual energy radiating throughout Western Europe. Still, all this was, I repeat, of less significance than the decline of the Protestant culture from within. The Catholic culture continued to be divided. There were no signs of its returning to its great role in the past, and though the seeds both of Irish and Polish recovery had been sown, the former through the very important recovery of their land by the tenacious Irish peasantry, no one could have foretold, as indeed most cannot yet perceive, the strengthening of the Catholic culture as a whole throughout our civilization. There were great converts, as there have always been. There were, what is even more significant, whole groups of very eminent men, such as Brunetiere in France, who grew less and less sympathetic with the old-fashioned atheism and agnosticism, and who, without declaring themselves Catholic, were clearly sympathetic with the Catholic side. But these did not influence the main current. What really made the change was the great internal weakness of the Protestant culture as opposed to the Catholic. It was this decay of the opponent to the Church which began to transform Europe and prepare men for yet another great change, which I shall call, so as to give it a name and be able to study it later, the modern phase. Protestant culture decayed from within from a number of causes, all probably connected, although it is difficult to trace the connection, all probably proceeding from what physicists call the autotoxic condition of the Protestant culture. We say that an organism has become autotoxic, when it is beginning to poison itself, when it loses vigor in its vital processes and accumulates secretions which continually lessen its energies. Something of this kind was happening to the Protestant culture towards the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. This was the general cause of the Protestant decline, but its action was vague and hard to grasp. On the particular causes of that decline, we may be more concrete and certain. For one thing, the spiritual basis of Protestantism went to pieces through the breakdown of the Bible as a supreme authority. This breakdown was the result of that very spirit of skeptical inquiry upon which Protestantism had always been based. 
It had begun by saying, I deny the authority of the church. Every man must examine the credibility of every doctrine for himself. But it had taken as a prop, illogically enough, the Catholic doctrine of scriptural inspiration, that great mass of Jewish folklore, poetry, and traditional popular history, and proverbial wisdom which we call the Old Testament, that body of records of the early church which we call the New Testament, the Catholic Church had declared to be divinely inspired. Protestantism, as we all know, turned this very doctrine of the Church against the Church herself and appealed to the Bible against Catholic authority. Hence the Bible, Old and New Testaments, combined, became an object of worship in itself throughout the Protestant culture. There was a great deal of doubt and even paganism floating about before the end of the 19th century in the nations of Protestant culture. But the mass of their populations, in Germany as in England and Scandinavia, certainly in the United States, anchored themselves to the literal interpretation of the Bible. Now, historical research, research in physical science, and research in textual criticism shook this attitude. The Protestant culture began to go to the other extreme, from having worshipped the very text of the Bible as something immutable and the clear voice of God, it fell to doubting almost everything that the Bible contained. It questioned the authenticity of the four Gospels, particularly the two written by eyewitnesses to the life of our Lord, and more especially to that of St. John, the prime witness to the Incarnation. It came to deny the historical value of nearly everything in the Old Testament prior to the Babylonian exile, it denied, as a matter of course, every miracle from cover to cover and every prophecy. That a document should contain prophecy was taken to prove that it must have been written after the event. Every inconvenient text was labeled an interpolation. In fine, when this spirit, which was the very product of Protestantism itself, had done with the Bible, the very foundation of Protestantism, it had left nothing of Protestantism but a mass of ruins. There was also another example of the spirit of Protestantism destroying its own foundations, but in a different field, that of social economics. Protestantism had produced free competition, permitting usury and destroying the old safeguards of the small man's property, the guild and the village association. In most places where it was powerful, and especially in England, Protestantism had destroyed the peasantry altogether. It had produced modern industrialism in its capitalistic form. It had produced modern banking, which at last became the master of the community, but not much more than a lifetime's experience of industrial capitalism and of the bankers' usurious power was enough to show that neither the one nor the other could continue. They had bred vast social evils, which went from bad to worse, until men, without consciously appreciating the ultimate cause of those evils, which cause is, of course, spiritual and religious, at any rate found the evils unendurable. But the later wealth and political power of the Protestant culture had been based upon these very institutions, now challenged. Industrial capitalism and the usurious banking power were the very strength of 19th century Protestant civilization. They had especially triumphed in Victorian England. They are, at the moment in which I write these words, still on the surface all-powerful. But we, every one of us, know that their hour has struck. 
they have rotted from within, and with them the Protestant hegemony which they so powerfully supported in the generations immediately before our own. There was yet another cause of weakening and decline in the Protestant culture. The various parts of it tended to quarrel one with the other. That was what one would have expected from a system at once based upon competition and flattering human pride. The various Protestant societies, notably the British and Prussian, were each convinced of its own complete superiority. But you cannot have two or more superior races. This mood of self-worship necessarily led to conflict between the self-worshippers. They might all combine in despising the Catholic culture, but they could not preserve unity among themselves. The trouble was made worse by an inherent lack of plan. The Protestant culture, having begun by exaggerating the power of human reason, was ending by abandoning human reason. It boasted its dependence upon instinct, and even upon good fortune. There was no commoner phrase on the lips of Protestant Englishmen than the phrase, We are not a logical nation. Each Protestant group was God's country, God's favorite, and somehow or other it was bound to come out on top without the bother of thinking out a scheme for its own conduct. Nothing more fatal for an individual or a large society in the long run can be conceived than this blind dependence upon an assured good fortune and an equally blind neglect of rational processes. It opens the door to every extravagance, material and spiritual, to conceptions of universal dominion, world power, and the rest of it, which in their effect are mortal poisons. All these things combined led to the great breakdown which we date overtly from 1914 but of which the inception lay three years earlier at least, for it was three years before the outbreak of the Great War that the nations began to make their preparations for conflict. In the Great War, of course, the whole of the old state of affairs went down with a crash, so much as survived what had been the institutions of the Protestant hegemony, controlled by the banks, the levying of general usury through international loans, the wholly competitive industrial system, the unchecked exploitation of a vast proletariat by a small capitalist class, only survived precariously, propped up by every sort of device, and that in only a few societies. In the mass of our civilization, these things rapidly disappeared. The main political institution which had gone with them, parliaments composed of professional politicians and calling themselves representatives, went down the same road. Our civilization began to enter a period of political experiments, including despotisms, each of which experiments may be, and probably is, ephemeral, but all of which are, at any rate, a complete break with the immediate past. The old white world, wherein a divided and distracted Catholic culture was overshadowed by a triumphant and powerful Protestant culture, was no more. But let it be noted that this breakdown of the older anti-Catholic thing, the Protestant culture, shows no sign of being followed by an hegemony of the Catholic culture. There is no sign as yet of a reaction towards the domination of Catholic ideas, the full restoration of the faith by which Europe and all our civilization can alone be saved. It nearly always happens that when you get rid of one evil, you find yourself faced with another hitherto unsuspected. And so it is now with the breakdown of the Protestant hegemony. We are entering a new phase, the modern phase, as I have called it, in which very different problems face the eternal church 
and a very different enemy will challenge her existence and the salvation of the world which depends upon her. What that modern phase is, I shall now attempt to analyze.